I have with me on the phone Professor Eric Kilpatrick, who's from the Department of Clinical Biochemistry at Hull Royal Infirmary and from Hull York Medical School in the UK, as well as Professor Stephen Atkin, who's Professor of Medicine at Whale Cornell Medical College in Qatar. They're both here to talk to us about the use of glycosylated haemoglobin to diagnose type 2 diabetes or to assess those at high risk, which is the subject of an article on bmj.com. Eric and Steve, welcome to this BMJ podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Now, let's start with when we should be thinking at all to test for either diabetes or diabetes risks. What sort of patients should make us start doing that? Um, well, perhaps I could kick off uh, with that one, Eric. Yes, go ahead. Uh, basically, um, it's those patients who you've got a very high or even a low suspicion that they should actually be tested. Those patients who, for example, come with fatigue, those patients who come with a very positive family history, um, those patients who basically give the classical symptoms of, of the osmotic symptoms of diabetes too. Uh, what we didn't put in the article, but is coming out more in the literature too, are those patients, uh, those women, with polycystic ovary syndrome, uh, especially those with a body mass index greater than 30 uh, and with a family history. Okay, so they may either be symptomatic patients with classic symptoms such as fatigue or polyuria, polydipsia, um, and or, as you say, people with some sort of risk factor in the background who may be asymptomatic. That, that's correct, Mabel. There's, um, there's a number of self-assessment questionnaires available now. Uh, there's one, for instance, that Diabetes UK uh, promotes uh, for their diabetes risk score, and that takes certain demographics into account as to that person's subsequent risk of developing diabetes in the next 10 years. So they are then talking about things like age, gender, ethnicity, family history of diabetes, obviously the BMI of the patient and their waist circumference, and even take into account whether they've got a history of hypertension or not. And from that, you can assess that individual's risk of subsequently developing diabetes, even if they don't have it already. Okay, so using formal clinical risk assessment tools definitely plays a role for what you're saying. Yes, undoubtedly. And th there are other risk assessment tools available that can take into account blood glucose or haemoglobin A1C values to further refine the risk of that de person developing diabetes. Okay, well that leads us on very nicely to the next question, which is what are the main tests available to the general practitioner? I think I shall pass this one over to Eric specifically, but, uh, which is well within his normal remit. Well, certainly within, since the turn of the century, um, diabetes has been diagnosed using blood glucose levels. And that's been refined over the decades. And now the diagnosis is mainly based on fasting glucose values or in those individuals with borderline fasting glucose values, that's impaired fasting, glycemia. Uh, they, these patients usually go on to get glucose tolerance tests performed. Now, haemoglobin A1C has been around for the last 50 years or so, uh, but it's only in the last decade or so that it's been considered that this could be used as a test not just to assess individuals already known to have diabetes, 
but actually to diagnose type 2 diabetes as well. And so in 2011, the WHO uh, allowed hemoglobin A1c to be used as an alternative test to diagnose diabetes, alternative to the blood glucose criteria. Okay, so it would be very useful for GPs to be aware then of the pros and cons for each test. From a practical point of view, clearly the oral glucose tolerance test requires a lot more. Uh, Steve, would you like to take us through um, how you would advise a patient uh, before undertaking an oral glucose tolerance test? Well, the most important thing is to actually tell the patient what the test obviously entails, which is obviously the ingestion of 75 grams of glucose. And whilst that doesn't sound very horrendous, it is an awful lot either of uh, glucose and hydrous glucose dissolved in water, or some units use um, leucosade, degas leucosade. The problem with this test is that it has to be consumed usually within five minutes, and it's quite a large volume of water with glucose in to to consume. Uh, Some patients do feel nauseous. There are some patients who actually flush as a consequence, although obviously there are some patients who have absolutely no untowards effect whatsoever. It's critical, of course, that the patient fasts overnight and that the test be undertaken around about 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock in the morning uh, for maximal patient comfort, really, more than anything else. Blood's actually withdrawn at baseline before the glucose is given, and then at two hours after the uh, after the onset of the test. Yeah, so obviously it involves two separate visits, which can be rather um, uh, inconvenient for many patients. Um, Eric, would you uh, actually? Is there anything else we need to cover about the oral GTT before I move on? No, maybe the only other point I would make is because the the glucose tolerance test is so laborious and time-consuming for both the patient and uh, the healthcare worker, there has been a move even with glucose criteria to try and minimise the use of the glucose tolerance test and concentrate more on fasting glucose as the diagnostic test. And so even over the last 15 years or so, that's been becoming more predominant uh, and the number of glucose tolerance tests have tried to be reduced. That is certainly a welcome change, uh, I must say. And your article, of course, gives the uh, threshold levels to make the diagnosis of diabetes or impaired glucose tolerance or indeed impaired fasting glycemia, uh, which is very helpful. Um, Let's turn our attention now to HbA1c. Now, clearly, it's the one test and doesn't require any fasting, so much more convenient. Are there any any other advantages to the HbA1c or glycosylated haemoglobin test? There are some other advantages. Um, It's presumed it's an advantage that haemoglobin A1c gives an indication of glycemia over the past few weeks or months rather than a one-off glucose measurement or a one-off glucose tolerance test. And it's undoubtedly the case that the variation in haemoglobin A1c, either from day to day or week to week, is less than that of fasting glucose and substantially less than that of a two-hour post-GTT glucose value. 
And so you can be more certain about the consistency of that value. And so if you have a single measurement, it's unlikely to change over time, um, over a short period of time, certainly. And of course, um, glucose, you have to get it to the lab fairly quickly. That's why we collect it into uh, containers that contain a preservative uh, so that the glucose value doesn't fall. But even then, you have to have that measured within 24 hours, whereas with hemoglobin A1c, you can certainly measure it after a few days and even after a couple of weeks, and it still will give a similar result to uh, when it was first taken. And I should mention, of course, that the oral glucose tolerance test requires patients to take that glucose load which, as you've described so eloquently, Steve, can be quite unpleasant for a few patients uh, and certainly weighs heavily on people who have to have them a second time or third time round. I think the other problem that there is there, Mabel, it, it, again, that um, Eric alluded to, is the kind of pressure on the healthcare worker because it really does need to be taken at two hours. And whilst it's very easy to take this fasting sample and then the glucose in a very busy environment, it's very difficult sometimes to actually get that two-hour uh, glucose value. And if you read the papers that have been written by the proponents of using hemoglobin A1c for diagnosis, time and time again, the main reason that it's being pushed is because it doesn't require a fasting sample. And um, it, it's assumed that one of the reasons why there are so many people not diagnosed as having diabetes who already have it, is because of the difficulty in getting patients fasting to get an accurate glucose measurement. So the hope is that uh, hemoglobin A1c may therefore allow more opportunistic screening of these individuals because it wouldn't matter when you actually took that sample. Yes, that, that's a very good point. And it leads us, of course, then to the other side of the coin. When should we not use HbA1c. Well, I think it's um, as we as we wrote actually in the article, it's absolutely crit critical that the HbA1c isn't used in children and young people uh, in pregnancy, either current or within two months of being pregnant, uh, particularly for those patients that you suspect have got type one diabetes, when it's critical to get a blood glucose, simply because an HbA1c wouldn't reflect. Uh, acutely uh, rise in blood glucose. Um, patients really who are at high risk of diabetes who then have a separate intercurrent illness which could precipitate them into uh, diabetes or uh, any kind of pancreatic damage or pancreatic surgery. Would you like to add to that, Eric? Yes, it's, in, it's probably ironic in some way that one of the main advantages of hemoglobin A1c that it does give an indication of prior glycemia over the past few weeks or months is actually a disadvantage when it comes to using it as a diagnostic test because the hemoglobin A1c value will lag behind acute changes in glucose. And so you might be falsely reassured by a normal hemoglobin A1c when someone's glucose value has abruptly increased. And I think uh, your article also mentions not using it in people with renal failure and those on treatment for HIV infection. 
Yes, renal failure is, um, by that I'm defining it as uh, CKD stage 5, so true renal failure. Um, it's a bit of a minefield for hemoglobin A1C because these individuals can have hemolytic anemia, they can have iron deficiency anemia, both of which can affect the hemoglobin A1C in result. And they can also produce excess amounts of urea-derived carbamylated hemoglobin. And for some of our hemoglobin A1C methods that we use, they can also be affected by that uh, by carbamylated hemoglobin. And so you might get a spurious result in that case. And what about patients who are either anemic or might have abnormal hemoglobin? Again, it's very method dependent. Um, for many of the abnormal hemoglobins, um, many methods are able to accommodate that. In other words, they're able to give an accurate assessment of the hemoglobin A1C in that patient. But for some methods and for some hemoglobinopathies, it will completely fox the methods of analysis. And so the results you could get could either be falsely low or falsely high just because that person is either carrying an abnormal hemoglobin or they're uh, a homozygote for abnormal hemoglobins. So if would your advice be then to avoid using HbA1c to test uh, these patients or, or to let the lab know in advance what's the better option? I think if you know what the abnormal hemoglobin is, then it's probably worthwhile consulting with your local laboratory to find out whether the method that they are using might be affected by that particular uh, abnormal haemoglobin or not. If it is likely to be affected, or even if it isn't likely to be affected, but the haemoglobinopathy will affect the red cell survival for that individual, then I would recommend using glucose uh, as the diagnostic test. Steve, have you anything else to add to uh, what's been said so far? No, I think that um, Eric's very eloquently um, outlined all of the kind of the, the pros and cons, really, and the pitfalls that one can fall into uh, and when to use fasting blood glucose instead of an HB1C, really. And that's a very useful summary of our podcast. So thank you, Steve and Eric, for your time. You're very welcome. Pleasure. So that was Eric Kilpatrick and Stephen Atkin talking about the use of HbA1c in particular to diagnose type 2 diabetes or to assess for risk of diabetes. For more information, go to bmj.com.